0: And this is DataCast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the world of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science.
1: Hi listeners, this is DataCast. I hold long form in conversation with data practitioners and Python the journey journeys of career. My guest today is Sakit Dai, Vice President in the San Francisco Office a best of Bessemer Venture Partners. We primarily focus on early-stage investment in developer platforms data products, and software infrastructure. He's been involved with Bessemer's investment in Green Prefect, called Akan Labs, Rescope Data, Akira, Guild Education, and Scylla Nanotechnologies. Before joining Bessemer, Sakiv worked at Product at Viagogo, an international marketplace for buying and selling tickets for live events. So Sakib, it is my great pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, James. Appreciate it. While doing the homework for our conversation, I uh, discovered that you were originally from Orange County in California. And then for school, you enrolled in the Jerome Fisher Program in Management and Technology at the University of Pennsylvania. So my question is twofold. Uh, first, could you mind sharing any formative experiences of your bringing And secondly, how could you describe your overall academic experience in Penn?
2: Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of my sort of upbringing naturally was influenced by my parents. Um, they had immigrated from. Pakistan to America. Now it was, gosh, 29 or 30 so plus odd years ago, and eventually settled in Southern California, the Orange County area. And so growing up there, they had a lot of influence on me, just in terms of like mentality to work and the work ethic that they instilled on me, but really encouraged a lot of varied interests at school as well too. And so that got me really excited about the sciences and math, but also Things like history and literature, like they really cultivated this broad, multivariate education for me. And so as I was thinking going through elementary school, high school and applying to colleges, just like what types of education I wanted, I wanted something that was not necessarily just a single discipline and something that really crossed uh, multiple disciplines as well too. And I had a cousin who, he went to Penn for his MBA and he... I had told me about this program, the m t program that you, that you mentioned, which is a dual degree in engineering and business, and said, hey, you should check this out. It sounds like something that might be up your alley, just getting an interest in the sciences and math, but also doing other things as well, too, in tandem with that. And when I got to learn a lot about it, I just thought, wow, this is an amazing opportunity. And was when I applied, I was just fortunate to get in. And it turned out that it was the perfect fit for me to seeing all the folks who were there and Seeing how they had somewhat similar interests in that it was also focused on technology, but applications of technology broadly in business and other sectors as well, too. I think it ended up being the perfect educational experience for me and really exposed me to a lot of like the practical applications of an engineering degree, which is already fairly practical in many ways, but I think really tied some of the business aspects of it with the sort of sciences and maths particular.
1: see. So do you already know that you, you want to study something related to the application technology into business, right? Not just poor theoretical technology, but like that intersection between tech and business.
2: When I first went, I don't think I knew that I wanted to do something like, quote unquote, applicable in the way of doing it in the form of business or like something that would result in venture capital, for example. I, I just knew I was interested in the sciences, maths and other things as well, too. Um, there was a point at which I was like, I, I might become a doctor. That seems that could be a pretty interesting application of things. And as I got to Penn and just started exploring a bunch of different areas, I, I just felt really excited by what was happening in the startup world in particular. And there's a whole host of reasons for that. This was back 2011 to 2015, when I wouldn't say Silicon Valley and the tech industry was like, common knowledge in the way that it is today. It was still, it was growing rapidly and people were super aware of it. There were these big logos like Facebook and Google that were incredibly exciting and people really wanted to work for. But it was still this interesting growing, very rapidly evolving area, which it is today still. But I think that early, seeing that early signs of things growing and changing in that way were really, what really interesting to me.
0: Yeah.
1: Thanks for having that early interest. So you mentioned you studied the the management intelligence program at, at Penn. I'm just curious, was there any like interesting classes that you recall? Favorite classes that you took?
2: Yeah, I really enjoyed. So I'll pick one on the engineering side and one on the the business side, and then one that's like totally unrelated. Um, I'm a big history guy, so I like I took this Roman history class. It was just like really fascinating and interesting for me. I love looking back at like world history and putting the pieces together and this professor did a really amazing job of just giving you the primary secondary resources and taping this narrative of what it was like to be around when Julius Caesar was assassinated or Octavian became emperor and the cult of personality that he developed and how you try and understand like the ways in which he crafted that narrative for the generation growing up then, but also what we were trying to interpret in history forward. So that class uh, was incredible for me, um, which is really interesting. On the business side, um, some of my marketing classes were just absolutely fascinating. I, I always, uh, I, I did a lot of work in the marketing department there um, I, I Penn and, and just thought it was like, they, they had such interesting approaches, both qualitative and quantitative to understand like what works from a marketing perspective. And a lot of it was brand focused. And obviously that's changed now in recent years because there's so much happening in the performance advertising world with the Googles and Facebooks of the world dominating market, but this gave you insight into how you do brand marketing and even to a certain extent, performance marketing in a very qualitative and quantitative way. It was cool. And then the last one in the engineering side, I loved this, this class on semiconductor physics. I studied material science and it gave you this perspective of how these computers and phones and devices that we all use, like the basic components of them being the transistor, which powers or, or the fiber optic cable. All of this is powered by deep material science work that was done, starting with the quantum physics revolution in the early 1900s, all the way to Bell Labs and the work and research that was going on there to Fairchild and Intel and the other semiconductor companies that grew up in the Valley in, in the 60s. So you've got the history of that evolution, but also the science of that evolution, which was really
1: cool to see. Yeah, thanks for sharing those classes. Seems like you have very wide-ranging interest. From history to engineering to marketing, which just make it a very holistic undergrad experience. Besides academics, you also took part in a summer internship as a material science engineer at Innovat Dynamics and tech investment banker at Morgan Stanley. What valuable lesson have you learned from these internships?
2: Yeah, I did those internships somewhat intentionally. I wanted to try something that was very engineering focused and something that was very business focused. And the Dynamics internship, is this company based in San Francisco. So it was my first exposure to SF as an adult. It was a company that was just embedding silver nanowires into like plastics to help create flexible touchscreen displays. So like incredibly interesting technology, like fascinating. It also gave me a really good insight into like what being a material scientist would be like. And it was very research heavy and very lab heavy as well too, in particular, which was interesting in its own way. But it very quickly made me realize that's probably not what I wanted to do locked or, despite having a lot of intellectual interests in, in sort of the field and, and position. So it did what the internships, I think, are supposed to do, which is tell you what you're not supposed to do or what you shouldn't be doing with your, with, with your career. And so in the next one, I decided, hey, I want to try something more business oriented. And I, I can't think of anything that's more, quote unquote, business school-y than like investment banking it's probably the most business school type of internship you could possibly have. And uh, I worked in Morgan Stanley, their tech investment banking group. It was just uh, like a really interesting learning experience, getting to see what those jobs are actually like. And I think folks who go into investment banking are generally incredibly hard workers and incredibly smart. But again, coming out of that one, I also realized that was not the right career path for me. And it wasn't necessarily the long hours per se. It was more, I personally didn't feel like I was learning all that much. I really wanted a career early on where I felt like my learning curve was incredibly steep and incredibly high. But I did confirm at least like these things we were working on, which were IPOs or um, M&A transactions and just decks to understand where things are trending for our clients it's actually really interesting work. Like when you look at the content on it, you'd be like, this is fascinating. And so i had the sense like going in that direction was where I wanted to be. Although coming out of both of those internships, I, I didn't really know exactly what that meant for even a career in the short term, let alone the long term.
1: Yeah, it also like you deliberately try to experiment different career paths and get a sample of what is it like to be an engineer? What does it like to be a banker? And then figure out where you want to be in the long term, right?
2: Totally. And I wouldn't like... I think I give this advice to a lot of people too. Try as many things as you can early on and just see what you like and what you don't like. And with the internships, especially, a lot of young kids in school are like, oh my gosh, this internship is going to set me up for my junior year internship, which will set me up for my post-college and my MBA. I have my 10-year plan, not even my five-year plan. That's really not the point of the internship, I think. I think it's actually just try stuff and see what you actually like or don't like. That's okay to say no to something.
1: Yeah, perfectly. So that transition super well to my, my next question. So after graduating from Penn, you joined investment venture partners to partner with builders creating the future through new technology. So my question is twofold. First of all, what motivated you to pursue a career in venture capital? And secondly, what about Bessemer's philosophy that attracted you to join the firm?
2: Yeah, I would be lying if I said that I knew I wanted to do venture the whole time. It was totally an accident. I had no idea what it was. Truly. It just it, it happened it so happened that Bessemer would recruit sometimes for undergraduate students who were interested in joining at the very junior level as an analyst. And I just happened to wander into a Bessemer Information session, get to learn about what the role was and thought, Hey, this is cool. I might as well figure it out and see if it's something worth pursuing over the long term. And as I just got down the process, I got to learn a lot about what it meant to be a junior investor at a firm like a Bessemer where they've been doing that type of program for many years and thought it was interesting. And I was fortunate enough to get the position and it was bop to the races from there. I think from the Bessemer perspective, like what I learned as I was going down the process was they just let you, it it was two main things in particular. They give you a ton of independence. You are in some ways, not totally, this is a little bit exaggerated. You are dropped into a room Go told, go find really interesting businesses and, and markets and help us discover what the next like Pinterest or Twitch or Twilio could be. So you get a ton of responsibility as somebody just coming fresh out of school or basically with literally no real practical experience. And you get to talk to people who honestly are much smarter and much more educated and talented in so many ways than you are. And you just get to learn from them, which is incredible. Um, And then the second piece being intellectual odyssey, like Bessemer talked about itself as a place that's very thesis oriented. And you have to go very deep into spaces and understand what's happening in the markets and try to make investments in the best companies from seed to growth all the way until pre-IPO stage. And I do think that's true. Like we actually really like doing the work. And I think it lends itself, Bessemer at least, as a place to people who are incredibly intellectually honest about, hey, I think this is where things are heading. Or, hey, I disagree with you, here's why. Or, hey, we made this investment and it worked out for this reason. Or, we made this investment and it didn't work out and I made these mistakes. And we had these sort of open conversations about what is working and what isn't that I think is pretty unique, at least from some of the workplaces that I've seen. And heard of.
1: So, like, just two things, being independent and being intellectually honest, right? Those are the key things that that draw you in about that environment at investment.
2: Yeah, definitely, and probably the third, which is something that you should get from any sort of place, is like the people you work with are generally nice and genuine and like actually care about your success. So which is really like really That that definitely helps a lot.
1: Yeah, you mentioned a bit in that answer about like how talk with different people smarter than you and also try to dive deep in different spaces. So just out of curiosity, as a new analyst at the firm, how did you prove your value upfront in potential deal conversation and start? Forming your um, investment thesis?
2: Yeah, a lot of it is being present, I think, and being a really active listener. And it, it sounds somewhat simple, I'd say, but especially in the more junior roles, as you're starting to develop your career and develop your skill set, having this for a spur point of view that's based off of doing the work, talking to users, talking to customers, other people in the industry, and forming this sort of synthesized view. That's what founders ask from us a lot of times. Hey, what do you feel is going on in the market? Where are things headed? And it's because we get this like perspective at a high level of just seeing how the landscape is evolving and shifting over many years or how we predict it might be shifting over the next 10-year period because of X, Y, and Z trends. And like that is at its core, I think a big part of what the, the venture job is. And having doing that work as a young person as much as you can and like actually being In Not necessarily in the weeds, per se, but with the others in the data community or, I don't know, the financial services industry, like with fintech folks or other folks like that, like getting that sort of perspective and and being able to put it together into a cogent way and then sharing it with founders helps a lot because it can be easy to default to. I don't know what the right way to say it is, but like passive venture mode, where you're just oh, what's the what are the numbers? Like, tell me that. When are you raising? Not having the full conversation about like where things are going, why the product is important, and why all this other stuff is happening, um, and why people are approaching it that way. And I think when you go that level deeper and much deeper, and have that type of engagement with founders, you can build a better relationship with them. That. And that's what a lot of this business is about. It's like having a really strong, trusted relationship with somebody across the table mm-hmm. who you might be on the board with or you might be working with as they're the CEO and founder and you're the, uh, the board member or investor and you're on this 10-year plus marriage together trying to help steer this ship to his final destination wherever that
1: might be. For sure. And I guess throughout the evolution of your career you start focus a little bit more on specific sectors, software infrastructure, data products, even gaming, if I believe. How do you end up focusing on these areas?
2: Yeah, it's a great question of like where to spend time because you can spend time almost anywhere. Um, and we try to look at least from the investment perspective, I think for most venture investors, like what are the trends that are shaping the world for the next 10, 15, 20 plus years? Right. What are these macro shifts happening that'll create entirely new industries or create entirely new opportunities for technology or any sort of businesses to take advantage of? Um, and some of it being personal experience that might inform that, like in the gaming space, for example, like I was just a gamer. I thought, wow, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening here. Let me go explore it and see what's going on. And just massively multiplayer online games, for example, that turned more into like consumer, so like true consumer social platforms to like esports teams, because there's some really interesting things happening there with the rise of Twitch, viewership of esports relative to other t- more traditional sports and how that might impact the sports media economy, at least as well. And then in folks like in faces like the software infrastructure data infrastructure landscape is obviously now looking back in this massive shift to cloud, starting with the launch of AWS, and now just massive explosion and growth of application software companies, as well as the infrastructure layer that powers many of those companies and a lot of other businesses that are traditional technology companies per se. But they all have developers, all have technical teams, that are starting to implement technology applications on the front end to consumers or use technology in the back end behind closed doors to power their businesses and it just felt like this massive wave and shift was happening where so many folks were focused on enabling those professionals to be more successful it felt like a really interesting way to spend time as an investor and see what was going on there so
1: yeah thanks for sharing that we certainly might be- some of the high-level value that Bessemer had to the portfolio companies later on in your conversation. But just to come back into your career trajectory, you actually spent a brief year doing work management at Via Gogo, which is an international marketplace for buying and selling tickets for live events before yeah. going back to Bessemer. What have you learned during that one year as a startup operator?
2: Yeah, it left Bessemer to just try something different. I was pretty young and it was just like, Hey, maybe I'll go learn something else for a while to the point earlier in the conversation about just trying new things and seeing what you like and dislike. And when I joined via Gogo, it was pretty broad. Like I did everything from running the payroll to closing the books, helping close the books at the end of the month, and eventually ended up in the product organization there, working primarily on our supply team. We had a bunch of things around the supply side where we were finding folks who were selling tickets and enabling folks to sell tickets more effectively. And it turned out that it was actually less of a product role, per se, and more of a data science data analyst role. We were doing things like classic BI reporting. Most of the PMs were all really SQL fluent and everybody at the organization valued folks highly who could derive insights from themselves, from the data. And we also did things like experimentation and sort of data labeling in-house that I didn't fully appreciate that were very unique to the organization at that time, but turned out were incredibly valuable for the business and helped it grow to massive amounts of revenue over a fairly long period of time, just pushing in one constant direction on excelling at uh, data in the organization. It turned out that experience just exposed me even more to this software infrastructure and data infrastructure land. Wow, people who actually do these sorts of things that aren't as sophisticated as, I don't know, reinforcement learning at scale can create really valuable businesses as a result. And it's going to be a huge differentiator over the long term. So it was great to just see one, what the actual nuts and bolts of companies look like on the inside, which is not always as clean and organized as perhaps investors might like to think, but that's okay. That's just how things naturally are. And secondly, just an expose me to this sort of really fascinating area of data infrastructure in particular. That's grown so much over the past, call it 10 years now or so. And there's so much room to grow, I think, still for a long period of
1: time. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. So, just appreciating the, all the bumps and curves on the way of, of working a startup and also appreciating like the importance of data to make business decisions. Those are the, the key learnings that you acquire from that time at Via Google. Yeah, it would ultimately drive you back to Bessemer
2: yeah I enjoyed the BioGogo experience and learned a ton. I did miss the venture experience, though, and that was really the main thing. It was the ability to learn about new spaces and talk to really like folks doing incredibly interesting things every single day that like energy you get. I don't know if you could find it in any other industry, honestly. And that's what keeps me, that was a, that's what brought me back to, to Bessemer and what keeps me going every day, really being able to like partner with these amazing folks who are like just doing truly world changing things and creating something from pretty much nothing. It's a pretty special thing to see. It's a very special thing to like learn about and see how the technology landscape is evolving as well, too. Um, and how those folks are powering it.
1: Yeah. Thanks for sharing that answer. So going from that sort of abstract level of partnering with world-class entrepreneurs down to like the details, I would love to investigate a few of your investment at, in the domain of developer-centric platform you were involved with investment in Darkly and security. And What are some of the key factors that triggered your team to make this investment?
2: Yeah, we have a whole sort of article even on developer platforms and like these eight laws that, that we look for. There's a few, well, I'll point out one in particular that I think is the one that like the most important or the most notable, not the user a lot, it's just love from the community or developer advocacy, I, I maybe it's the more modern way to say it. But these are things that sometimes you can quantify and comes in like usage metrics, seeing someone adopt it and then use it more and more over time. That's classic sort of product usage, or it shows up as a you know, um, sales numbers like a net dollar attention, for example. But it's things that are super qualitative as well, too, like user feedback. Some of that being posted on Twitter when they folks would post about, I don't know, Launch Sharkly or PagerDuty saying, wow, this is the most amazing feature flagging or incidents response tool I've ever used. And who actually, you know, who says that about those types of products? It doesn't happen all that often. It means it's like that special for folks. Or when you talk to your friends or experts or developers in, in an industry, you hear, wow, this has totally transformed our business. We couldn't have done it any other way. We tried all these other products. and This is the only one that really worked for us, and here's why. And you just hear the folks gushing about the product. It gets us really excited to invest in those types of companies. And so it was launched starkly, at paid your duty are really trends on those themes and also empower developers to do their work better. I think why developers seem to love those products, or the bots, practitioners seem to love those products. The same was true for other investment portfolio companies the developer platform space like a Twilio, a SendGrid or an Zero or Ashi, for example, as well too.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, like thanks for having that developer love. so crucial, especially for some of the you know, technically challenging issues. Like you mentioned, feature flagging is in responding in this case. Yeah. In the domain of data infrastructure, you have worked with companies such as Coit, Prefect, and Acon Labs. What about the products in the team of these companies that resonate with you?
2: I'll start with the teams. All three of those teams have really deep expertise for many years in the data space. So like Matt from Coil, Jeremiah from Prefect and Gary and Raj from, from Archeon just have a lot of in-depth knowledge on the data space in particular. And you, that's a lot of what is what you look for is maybe not necessarily a long history of expertise, but a lot of empathy for the user themselves, right? I think that comes from the founding team in a way that it can't really come from anybody else. And all three of those teams in particular had that, some of which was informed by like these long experiences in just working for companies that touch these data problems at scale in these ways. And the products, again, looked for, wow, this totally changed the way we do work. This is something that we tried a bunch of other folks perhaps, and it just didn't work in the same way as like an Archeon or change data capture and in, in, in a streaming way or in a real-time way or prefect like our airflow DAGs keep breaking or airflow breaks for us in this way and Prefect actually is a lot better for this reason and here's why and, and we love it we're starting to to use it more and it shows up in the data as well too it, it happened from both a team and a product perspective to follow some of our developer laws as well too
1: yeah and we definitely touch on some of the besides the product team i think like another big criteria in any decision is probably the market pool as well. And we'll talk about the market pool a bit later yeah. on in Azure. Yeah. And then finally, at like we also have some articles about investing in products that enable entrepreneurship and yeah. most notable one that I kind of come across, Guild Education and Tribe. Yeah. Can you share some details behind some of these investment decisions?
2: Yeah. I'm not sure Guild is like an enabling entrepreneurship company per se. I can share more about the Guild investments as well, too, though. We could talk about Tribe first, and I can go back to Guilds, but Tribe is a community management platform. So it helps folks like a creator to a SaaS business, to a larger enterprise, manage their communities. And we saw this trend, you know, pre-pandemic of folks build solopreneurs, perhaps is maybe another way to say it, creating really interesting businesses online because they could reach a virtually infinite number of people on the internet and find their niche community that was willing to provide them with an audience that was monetizable to an to ability to create a standalone business around it. And those were podcasters, for example, those were e-commerce businesses that came about during the rise of Facebook advertising really coming into to its own with folks like a Shopify, for example, where where we were early investors as well, too. And and there's just a continuation of that theme that we saw there, but in a variety of industries and community being one where we see the podcaster the e-commerce brand, like a glossier that start with this like really solid community of folks that they've built up in some way and want to manage them or at least put all the activity in one place for them to interact with and, and have their own site to be able to, to have an audience that they can share their work with as well, too. So that's at least in the tribe side. The guild side, I'd say there's multiple reasons for it why we made that investment. It's a corporate, it's an education as a service platform or as a benefit platform where they partner with folks like Disney and Walmart and some of these larger fortune, you know, 500 or even 50 companies that provide them with corporate their employees with education as a benefit so you can take classes and get an the accredited degree which is an incredible proposition for their employees, as well as for also for the employer who wants to retain folks and upskill them and uplevel them. But the, the CEO, Rachel, is just like force of nature. and I can't speak highly enough about her. She like, she shared the vision and what she was building. Uh, I don't know, you just, your jaw just drops. You're like, wow, this person's really smart. I'm really going to figure this thing out. And I believe that. Um, and she is like incredible in that way. And I think that's really a big reason. That's why we made that investment, even though it doesn't fit. I'd say, like, on any explicit one core focus area, like, we knew we were going to be doing an education as a benefit company. We've done education or a tech investments, but her vision was just so special that it so big, just compelled us to invest, really.
1: Yeah. Thanks for highlighting those detail. Yeah. It sounds like sometimes you come across very special products, even though your company doesn't fit into it. like a particular focus, you still compel your team to go for it. Yeah. Reflecting on your experience as a bot observer on the captables of different holistic company white best mode, what advice have you given your portfolio companies in hiring decision and navigating go-to-market strategy?
2: In navigating hard decisions and go-to-market strategies. Those are two sort of separate questions, I think. On the go-to-market side, I think I think it's listen to your customer more than anything, right? It, it, like we tend to where investors might tend to over-rotate on particular go-to-market strategies. I think there's like a obsession with PLG right now, like bottoms-up adoption and selling from the bottom and hopefully expanding over time. In some instances, that's great. If you can pull that off like Twilio, where you just have tremendous pull from developers who are willing to put their credit card down, pay for it, and eventually, over many years, grows into these large enterprise-type deals, that's fantastic. But not every industry has that. And so don't over-rotate on that type of go-to-market just because a lot of other people are doing it and talking about it. Like, that might not be right for the segment that we're in. Like, you have to figure out who the user is, who the budget holder is. And those two things may not necessarily be the same all the time. And I think that is somewhat the case in the data space where data analysts and data scientists don't have budget exactly in the same way that I think developers do. And budget might live with someone else in an organization that isn't the explicit user. Although the data scientists and data analysts might have a big say in that sort of decision-making process. So that's the one thing in terms of hard decisions it's totally varied and totally depends every company. I can't think of a single company in, in the portfolio that I've worked with that hasn't had to make hard decision at some point, whether it be about like, should we go out for this fundraising round, which actually is the really hard, big decision to make. Do we make this key executive hire? Was which one of these hires should we make? Do we have to scale back the company right now and and reduce our burn do we have to pull back on some of our marketing and sales expenses or try to dial back on other types of expenses these are all really difficult decisions to make Mm -hmm. the only thing i could say that is universal across all of them is like trying at least from a board to a founder perspective have really honest and open conversations is the best way to do things and certainly we try to have these open conversations as frequently as we can with like portfolio companies encourage them to like game plan, or plan ahead for different scenarios that you don't think are necessarily right around the corner, but might happen, like a recession, which everybody seems to be talking about. It is, it is impending. Maybe it's already or Maybe it's we're willing it into existence. But uh, I think you have to be like prepared and have open conversations about how to be prepared as well too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I guess another point that I came across in addition to the things that you already mentioned about supporting the entrepreneurs, that Bessimo you know, have a lot of like resources, right? Like operating partners, like services to educate the other companies. I I was browsing the, the website just yesterday and there's like anti-portfolios and memos completed the firm missed. And invest in the past, there's even like the pricing costs on how to like price and the crowd index, those kind of thing. Can you give just like a high level overview of some of these different services that SMR you yeah. know added to your entrepreneurs?
2: Yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> I'm not sure I, I A high-level overview still might take some time, actually. A lot of it is public, or much of it is public, I should say. Some of it is benchmarking that we do. Some of it is thesis-deriving work that we do. Things like our data infrastructure, developer platforms, or MAPS, for example, um, or the scaling from 1 to 100 million ARR benchmarks that are are our century or growth team. Um, In particular, our partner, Mary, um, has, has really led our efforts on and shared a lot of the great work that she's done in benchmarking across the portfolio. and We obviously share that back to our own portfolio companies to show them where they rank on all these different metrics and how to help them optimize across some of them. And yes, we do have an operating advisor network as well, too. We're just folks in the Bessemer network, like VPs of product at portfolio companies or CFOs who have gone through experiences that companies might have to go through throughout the life of their existence from founding all the way until the IPO and beyond stage. Whether it be making that sort of first marketing hire, first sales hire to, hey, we're about to go public and how do we get ready to do that? They're like, we want to go public, how do we get ready to do that? And we have an entire network of folks that help our portfolio companies in thinking through some of those things as well to having experience that firsthand. There's also a whole other set of services. A lot of community events that we do, founders often tell us that the one of the biggest things that they want is just the more of a community with other founders like that. Like it's a pretty lonely journey oftentimes. And so being able to spend time with other folks who are going through the same things is just really invaluable for them. And we do help with things like hiring or key executive positions as well too, like that VP of sales or VP of marketing or the CFO that that you're thinking about that can help accelerate and take the business to the next level.
1: Yeah, thanks for all, all those high-level services. And in, in particular, back to the point about intellectual... Honestly, that you brought up in Mm on your earlier answers, Bessemer published uh, different roadmaps, which is basically some of the deep Mm dives, the technologies and companies that are shaping the future. And in particular, back in June 2021, you have created Bessemer's roadmap on data infrastructure, which looks at the wave of startups enabling the next generation of data-driven businesses. Can you dissect some of the driving market trends, the five thesis on the data ecosystem, and the guiding principles about Bessemer will invest as ally in the roadmap?
2: Yeah, a lot of your listeners are probably going to be familiar with a lot of these market trends. So I'll try to breeze through them. But we saw maybe really four core things that were driving like a new wave of data infrastructure to be developed, to be created, what folks might be calling like the modern data stack right now, whatever you, you might want to think about that term. But you know, the first was growth and adoption of cloud software. We saw companies of all industries and sizes adopting cloud-based software run their businesses. And that just means that now have data sprawled across all your different systems, like a Salesforce, a HubSpot, a Zendesk, a AmeriCom, and dozens of other SaaS applications or databases that you needed to be able to pull together and understand and work with. And that led to the development of cloud-based data warehouses like Snowflake or Redshift or BigQuery on sort of the foundation to these architectures. Now startups are taking advantage of these flexible architectures and building around and on top of a Snowflake or a Firebolt to build products that serve the needs of these data teams or data professionals who want, or any business professional who wants access to the data across a lot of different sources and join them together and query them in interesting ways. The second, just an increase in volume of accessible data. There's more users in enterprise settings now, or even consumer applications that are just using software and generating more and more data. And so having reliable connections to those data sources becomes more important. The third, data is becoming more of a differentiating feature for a lot of businesses. We talk about data as like the new oil. I think maybe a good way to think about it is software has been eating the world. And data is really like the fuel for the machine to go do that. And TikTok and Netflix have really invested heavily into their data stacks to do things like personalized content and help with automated decision making similar types of business processes that just make them more competitive and serve as a little bit of a, an advantage across a variety of different functions and for consumer experiences as well too or for their end user experiences. It just the fourth, there is a huge demand for talent in the data space, right? There's an increasing number of data scientists, but there's still a massive gap and an even increasing larger gap of demand for data scientists as well too. And just given that there's this huge talent supply and demand mismatch, it felt as though each incremental data science or data analyst would have to be more productive doing the work that they do. And some of that comes out to having better technology to actually do your work faster and better. So all four of those factors really got us excited about the, the data space and investing in new products and, and companies that were bringing those to life.
1: Yeah, for sure. And that was the end of that roadmap. I think your team also mentioned some of the guiding principles on how to invest, like ranging from yeah. companies that leverage partnership and integration, focusing on community like growth, removing friction, and then easing inter- interaction and collaboration between roles. I think these are very interesting points. And, and that's also manifests itself in a lot of the products that are leading the ecosystem at this point.
2: Yeah. We talk about those four sort of core guiding principles of what we see in best-in-class data infrastructure platforms. And some of it does overlap with some of the developer platforms ideas that we have, right? We talked about just that user love and seeing, but like definitely a core principle of all of these types of platforms. But in the ecosystem side, folks like 5chan did a really good job of having partnerships with, you know, Looker and Snowflake, and that helped push their adoption forward as well, too. A lot of features or a lot of products right now, excuse me, when we talk to, to data practitioners, they talk about how they're just quite opinionated. And Being well integrated into, um, the ecosystem of tools that they use or want to use is really important for them to be able to adopt you. And 5chan did a really good job of navigating that and understanding that. And I think a big, it's a big reason why they've become so large as a company. Developing a community around your platform has also become increasingly important. DBT is perhaps like prime example of this as someone who's created this incredible community and used it, not just as a way to like, share updates happening in the community or updates happening with the product per se, but like being able to facilitate learning. DBT has become associated with this wave of analytics engineering and educated folks about how to do data work better. And it so happens that a lot of that happens with DBT as well too, but that's part of the beauty of the community they've created and the platform and project that they have associated with it. And other things like removing friction and enabling collaboration, folks like a hugging face in the machine learning world or some of the, the cloud-based notebooks like a Hex, for example, just help data scientists and other stakeholders in the enterprise work together in more, even easier ways. You can do the data work rather than siloed away from each other, but together, because it is pretty multidisciplinary, it helps quite a bit. And it's, it's something that we look for um, as we're looking at, at a variety of platforms as well, too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that answer. So in that roadmap, the team put together five different theses under the ecosystem, and I believe multiple articles have spun out since then to dive deeper in each of these thesis, which I want to dedicate the next few questions on. The first thesis was about tools that help us check away complexity from data engineering mm-hmm. problems. So what are some of those categories that make data engineering less complex?
2: Yeah, a lot of folks talk about these data engineering problems incredibly hairy, things that take up a lot of their time and are critical to the business. Just getting the data from a Salesforce to Snowflake is, or historically has been pretty difficult. And there's a platform like Fibetran in the ELT space, in the EL space, I should say, and then folks in the reverse ELT space, like a high touch or a census that pull data back from the Snowflake into your sort of core operational stores like Salesforce HubSpotters and Desk. So those are two categories that are pretty interesting. And then things in the workflow orchestration space, like the airflows, Prefects, and Dagster are also another core area that we looked at and made an investment in Prefect in particular on the orchestration side. Just because we continued to hear like the need from more mature data organizations as they were going through their data, their transformation journey of like, hey, we're moving all of our data into the cloud. We have a team of data scientists that are actually doing really interesting, not just backwards looking work, but also forward looking models on things like having a Platform to help orchestrate jobs in a cloud native way um, was becoming increasingly important for them. And Prefect really uh, helps facilitate that.
1: So, we talk about data engineers a bit. And a second thesis that you're talking about is that data scientists are driving uh, decisions. And as another piece, talk about the tools that power the next generation of data scientists. Yeah, can you highlight some of those categories that input data scientists to be more productive?
2: Yeah, there's a lot in there. Sort of high level view of it as data volumes continue to grow. There are a lot of business users working with and creating analyses. They needed to be empowered in the same way software developers were. And so we were excited about products that are helping data scientists increase e- effic- efficacy and efficiency in their jobs. And so these are things like transforming their data, for example, which might be called analytics engineering with something like a DVT, doing querying and processing more quickly and efficiently. And something like a starburst or a trino or these query processing engines some of this is ids and notebooks that helps people we'll collaborate together like a hex a notable a deep note or, or a ponder and then what i call it, these larger data science platforms that encompass a variety of things from pipelines to storage to processing um, like databricks or a data IQ in and our portfolio company coiled Starting to do some of that in in the Dask space as well, just helping them parallelize their workflows in the Python native tools and environments they might already know about.
1: Yeah, Dan, uh, that piece you talk about, like how is this tool is doing super well, both from a technical side as well as the organizational side, to help like these data scientists become like key stakeholders in the organization, and hopefully with that they have more decision and buying power and think prep macro, that kind of thing we talked about earlier, can become more and more of a good GTM function for data tooling company. Yeah. A third thesis from the roadmap is about the immersion and evolution of metadata management. And this is in that, in that article that another team wrote earlier this year. And within that piece, I, I think best modified is the category to include two buckets of data governance and data monitoring. Yep. So what are some of the trends in this metadata damage management category are you most bullish on in the upcoming years?
2: Yeah, which one I'm most bullish on? I think a lot is happening on both in a variety of different ways. So perhaps I'm cheating and saying both are actually pretty interesting, in my opinion. Um, and we see on the governance and management side, there's data catalogs, there's folks in the privacy space, folks in the lineage space, which I think also dovetails into some of the monitoring approaches and you see some like a Monte Carlo take a very different approach than a Great Expectations, which also has a slightly different take than a Data Fold, for example. Uh, But both of those two areas are pretty interesting. I do think in that space in particular, we're probably going to see a lot of consolidation of feature sets in both of them. When you listen to sort of users talking about the data catalogs, the privacy and access and control tools and the lineage tools and some of the observability features that they want, a lot of it seems like it will become encompassed in one broader platform. They aren't just looking for one thing, but they do want a more full suite there. And so folks are figuring out which wedge is the most interesting. And I think in the governance space in particular, there's a really a strong wedge to be had there, just given that it's so top of mind for a lot of IT departments, access to data it's like this really hairy, complex, and important, essential pain point. And it seems to be becoming more and more important. You have a portfolio company pair called O'Qara that, that helps organiz- enterprises do some of that, There's writing that tailwind.
1: Yeah. Like to tell a about consolidation. At the end, that piece, you make that distinction between a uh, suit of choice versus a specific breed in metadata, data management. Mm-hmm. And I think one suggestions on this thing that, that the team put on in that piece is like how, you know, these some of these different players can do integrated solution and also being designed with diversity of users in mind. And, and yeah, that's sort of like going back to one of the key principles of investing about ecosystem partnership integration here. So yeah, definitely excited to, to come to see how these tools, some of the winners emerge and also like just generally high integration partnership between them.
2: Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of evolution, even across the whole data stack. The quote-unquote modern data stack, I'd say there is going to be a lot of, there has been a lot of point solution. And you talk to users, they're like, there's so many products out there, I don't know how to make sense of all the noise. And so I think that does point to a certain amount of like tool fatigue, where platforms are going to add more functionality on other sides of their product, to make it easier for users to make a decision and say, Hey, I'm getting the governance tool here, I'm getting the data full data engineering platforms that I want here to be able to put data into a Snowflake or a Databricks or something like that. And then I do all of my sort of like analytics engineering work or core data practitioner work through a DBT or a similar style of platform like that.
1: The thought is about the evolution of machine infrastructure and recently published this for detailed post unpacking that evolution. Yeah. So can you talk about the market accelerants, some of the trends in the ML stack, as well as the growing opportunities for the ML industry based on that research?
2: Yeah, a lot of the themes are somewhat similar to the data infrastructure piece and what's tiring. It's just slightly different in that the quote-unquote traditional data analytics market is very backwards, historically based, right? It is more about reporting. Like, here is what happened past 12 months for our revenue for this set of customers, and this is what our marketing spend might have been, et cetera, things like that. And we are starting to see folks who've gone through that journey of adopting cloud software and cloud-based data stores who've already done all that work get really excited about what they can do as a result of that, and having all the data in the cloud. And that's, can we do simple things like predict LTV, predict churn for a customer, or what does that mean for our business and how we operate it and the decisions we can make based off of that type of data. And the best of breed companies like call it Uber or the, the tip of the spear companies who are leading the charge here, like Uber, Meta, and Netflix, ByteDance, Airbnb, have built a lot of that tooling to do that. That's not available necessarily to startups or medium-sized businesses. And that screams that there's an opportunity to enable machine learning teams at those companies, the earlier stage companies, or even enterprises that are not traditionally big tech, to go and do that. Um, so we're seeing at least three areas as a result start to emerge. Data labeling continues to be really interesting, simple, but we need to have really good, well-labeled data to do any of this work, even to begin with. And so there's just going to continue to be an increasing need there. Models as a service is maybe a simple way to put it, or, or platforms there. Companies like a Hugging Face, which lets you take its pre-trained model and pull it off the shelf, fine-tune it based on your data for your specific use case, and throw up the API to, to hit against it for inference. Just abstract away that infrastructure problem for these machine learning teams is, is really important and a key pain point for them. And then new databases like a vector database, a particular which helps you pass unstructured data through a model and store the relevant features for them, which just empowers you to do more interesting work on top of it. That might be things such as faster search or powering a recommendation system that historically might have been limited to something like Amazon or Netflix, for example.
1: Yeah. Thanks for highlighting those different trends and accelerating as well. Just a few months ago, that lesson we just released, could you mind highlighting those key trends and opportunities presented in that article?
2: Yeah, I think I'd call out three major trends. We're moving from batch to real-time. People are demanding data with much lower latency and platforms like can apply based off of Druid or, or a StarTree based off of Pino or enable like that with their OLAP databases and then run ads that also help you develop analytics for your end users as well too in a real-time fashion. Then augmented analytics, so adding some amount of automation on top of the analytics, whether it be for root cause analysis, and just being able to triage incidents or triage things happening much more quickly, something like a CC data, for example. And then vertical specific applications where there might be much, much, much further behind on sort of the the adoption of data infrastructure explicitly and hiring a data scientist being able to provide them with the tooling to understand and work with their data is becoming more important. That's folks like in Optimal Dynamics, for example, like trucking logistics and helping them optimize trucking routes. These are like pen and paper type of processes that um, haven't been taken to the cloud or haven't been taken to software just yet. Um, and collecting, storing, sharing that data and helping them optimize their routes is important. Or things like Symbio and pay equity analysis where No, folks didn't really have the ability to do like great cuts of their pay equity data to understand where they might sit relative to the benchmark of other companies and other roles in their sort of bucket or industry or in their title, perhaps, just understand like where they sit and how the organization sits as a whole. It makes it easier for them to remediate and resolve those pay equity gaps.
1: Yeah. Thanks for highlighting those areas of opportunities. This brought up this whole thing about roadmap. I could see that this is very comprehensive research that SEMO had done. Yeah for the whole industry at large. What has been general perception from the market fathers, practitioners since George team released released uh, this research uh, almost a year ago now?
2: Yeah, for uh, at least uh, sharing the research, it, it's been great to see some of the reception to it. I think people really do appreciate seeing some of the things that they're seeing on the ground, at least as founders or whether they be users as well too, or buyers perhaps that, hey, this like sort of lines up with what we're thinking about this. That's great. And it does highlight to me that we are still really early in this entire way. You know, Snowflake is this really big company that has gone public and we're all talking about it now. And it's a fantastic story, but it's easy to forget while you're in it that we're still, I think, in the very early days of like cloud-based data infrastructure really taking the whole world by storm it is somewhat still localized to what's called the like early-ish middle adopters and there's all sorts of other tooling around it that will mature and grow much 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 larger and that's not just in tech but in non-technical businesses as well too um, which is really exciting as an investor and i think it's also a founder and somebody who's a practitioner in the space, those are really exciting trends to be a part of in one way or another. I just see up front.
1: Yeah, thanks for pinning that optimistic vision. And finally, to cut kind of up, I'll a um, question. I also noticed that besides data infrastructure, you have shared a couple of investment perspectives on other areas, such as climate change and even student builders, alongside your co workers. Right. Can you briefly touch on some of these interests in these uh, areas?
0: Yeah,
2: as I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation too, like we, we, we like to focus on trends that are shifting the world and what that might enable. And those two are informed by, by that pursuit of what is happening today that might impact the way we consume energy or, um, consume content or become educated, um, over the next 10, 20 years. And it's pretty clear to, you know, myself and my colleagues that a lot is happening on the energy side. We're making this massive transition to renewables. It's just a fraction of you know energy generation today, and it will grow to a much, much larger portion of energy generation over the next 20 and 30 years. And what happens when we put solar on roofs and wind in the ground, you're offshore and have batteries and a bunch of vehicles running around everywhere or on the grid or in homes um, and a bunch of other transitions that um, really change the way energy has been consumed and generated that hasn't happened in decades, maybe more. And that means a lot of interesting businesses are going to come out of that as well, too, whether they be deeply technical, like material types of businesses, um, or software businesses, or just SMBs, main street, quote unquote, SMBs that put solar on roofs, for example. And then on the student builder side, we're starting to see with the explosion of content online, on platforms like a YouTube work or Sarah, it's like basically free. There's also a whole set of folks who are educating themselves online, sharing their work online, and sharing it back with the community and helping others learn as well too, in a more sort of community oriented way. And that's particularly exciting for, I think, the way we're going to see education shift, we're all forced to experience that in 2020 and 2021. And while I don't think traditional educational institutions are really going anywhere for quite some time, there is going to be a different way of learning that emerges over the long-term as well, too, as a result.
1: To both of this topic, topics, I think you were also involved with companies like Scylla, I Technologies, and Piazza, right? I think those two kind of, yeah. like, these two teams that we talk about. So, Saki, for this part, I want to move to your final closing segment, in which I'm going to ask you three rapid-fire questions, and you can provide quick answers for the listeners. Number one, uh, name three people in the venture capital community whose work you admire.
2: Okay. I'm going to choose non-Bescemer people to so not push the Bestmer agenda too much. Who are three folks in the venture community that I admire the most? One, for sure, especially in the data space, Sarah Catanaro from Amplify is like just her perspective on the world of data and infrastructure. She shows a lot of it on Twitter. It was but I just find her incredibly insightful and have a lot of respect for the investments she's made, as, as well as the Amplify team as a whole. They're quite good. Ed Sim at Bold Start is the second, probably. He's like this, um, he calls himself like a day one investor. He's at the first check-in, has really strong conviction and founders and teams building really interesting you know, companies from the outset and as early as a result in folks like Sneak and Big ID, for example, and uh, probably a ton of others that I'm just not remembering, so I just admire him a lot for his conviction. Then Mike Spicer at Sutter Hill, which is, he has a model that I think is almost impossible in some ways for traditional venture firms to emulate by incubating really world-changing businesses with incredible founders. And Snowflake is perhaps the, the most obvious one right now, given where it's, where it is today. But Thielo Technologies was also a Sutter Hill incubation. And it's pretty special to see someone who's helped facilitate both a data infrastructure business, as well as a battery materials business at the inception stage and support them for, for a really
1: long periods of time. Absolutely. Number two, name one book that you would recommend for people to cultivate better foresight.
2: Yeah, the one book I, mean, I love and I think it has helped me develop better foresight is a book called The Idea Factory. Actually, I'm not going to remember who the, the author was, which is perhaps... Uh, silly of me, but people should look it up. It's a good book. It's not directly about foresight, but it's mostly about like Bell Labs in sort of the the 20s, 30s and 40s and how a lot of the technologies that power computers and the internet were developed there over that timeframe. It just gives you this appreciation for the things that have to come together from a sort of market and team perspective for really interesting foundational sort of technologies to come to fruition. It helps us to answer that, help me at least think about that question of like, why, now? why is this big change happening now that creates interesting opportunities in startup landscape over the next 10, 20 years or so? And a lot of value to be created as a result from there. And sometimes some of that value isn't even captured by the person who's created that revolution. He hasn't really been the major beneficiary of the transistor work and the information theory work of folks like Shockley and Shannon that happened at Bell Lab.
1: Yeah, I think this connects kind of super well to your point all the way back earlier in your chat on like favorite classes pen, right? When you talk about like the history of science, I think history of semiconductor and I think about lab is like the model of a lot of the research lab these days to emulate given the technical innovation that they have released for the world. Run, yeah. yeah, I think but this
2: book just highlights my history nerd status. I just really enjoy the history of some of these things. It's very fascinating to understand and read about reflect on what happened like a hundred years ago or something.
1: And finally, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the early career VCs on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Stop tweeting. (laughs) Use what I tweet about. I'd
2: say stop tweeting. I'd be a little facetious there because I do like Sarah, for example, tweets, not like all day, every day, but she shares knowledge and insight that I think is really valuable to A lot of folks in the community. But I think we've over rotated on the tweeting to a certain extent, and a little less so on like the real core pieces of being an investor, which I do think still to this day holds true where like, being able to have good judgment in picking the right company is really like the most important thing of all in this job, not just tweeting all day. And that comes with a lot of practice a lot of mistakes along the way, I think, as well, too. And also just a lot of talking to folks, especially the users and the people who are there on the ground experiencing things every day. And, and yes, some of that does come from tweeting and having conversations with people in public. But I think we can do a little bit less of that and do a little bit more of the work that founders expect to do.
1: Yeah, the, the, the real work of getting good judgment and picking better companies, as just, you just alluded to. Asusaki, I really enjoyed uh, chatting with you today, learning about bringing in Sharon County, your time studying management technology at UPenn, some major internship working in material science and investment banking, your current journey as venture partners, partnering good builders, creating the future through new technologies, some major investment on companies in the categories of software platform, data infrastructure, and products that enable entrepreneurship. Technical advice of, on high decision and navigating economic strategy, BASMA, as well as our deep dive on the roadmap on data infrastructure as various theses that BASMA is looking at given the coming wave of that enabling the next generation of data driven businesses. I'll be sure and put everything that we discussed in the show notes. So let's just have a chance to take a look, follow up, and learn more so about your work at BASMA as well as generally high level insights. Perspective on trends that driving the modern data and MLSEC. I really enjoy our chat today and I hope you have a great rest of your day.
2: Thanks so much, James. I appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Thanks for having me on.
0: Well, that's the wrap for another episode of DataCast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jameskaley.com It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us Goodbye for now